0: Everyone, welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Let's face it, technology has become an inseparable part of our lives, with social media being at the center of our attention. Young or old, I mean, come on, everybody's grandma's on Facebook nowadays. We all spend several hours a week consuming content and connecting with others. While the verdict is still out on whether or not phones and social media are detrimental to our health, there is no denying the power that these items possess. So how can we as conservationists, nature enthusiasts, or biologists leverage technology for both scientific inquiry and entertainment? That, my friends, is what we're going to learn today. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Dylan Jones, a graduate student at San Diego State University who is studying the evolutionary history of herptofauna in middle America. And quick definition, herptofauna are reptiles, amphibians found in particular region or time period, which you'll also soon learn more about. He also uses social media as a powerful science communication tool and has reached Instagram influencer status. Dylan and I obviously connected online after I found his engaging videos and decided to reach out and say hi. We've been Insta Buddies ever since. Dylan and I discussed so much it's almost difficult to recap, but a few highlights include the huge potential of his Herp evolutionary study for advising conservation priorities, the why and how of him becoming an Instagram influencer with many tips and tricks, and a huge... (laughs) And a huge rant session between us about the broken wheel of academia, because why not? Today is also American Frog Day, which is why I'm releasing this episode this week. If you dig the conversation, add this episode to your Instagram story and tag Rewildology and Dylan the Biologist with hashtag American Frog Day. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to never miss a future episode all right friends here is my conversation with dylan well hi dylan thank you so much for coming on rewildology today we're gonna have so much fun i already know we are
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is gonna be so much fun yeah thanks for having me (laughs) we're
0: gonna have a freaking blast yeah i'm so excited to come on and oh my gosh please share with everyone listening how you got into this field and your childhood growing up, I would call it different than a lot of other people that become biologists. So please share.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's (laughs) so like, I think that a lot of people have this idea of like biologists, they they grew up like, in the dirt and in the mud, like grabbing snakes and worms and stuff or whatever. Um, I was like, dead terrified of everything to do with nature, like, but like, irrationally scared, like, I wouldn't go gardening with my grandfather, because I was scared of worms or whatever. They, they, they actually still make fun of me for uh, because I wouldn't go in swimming in the lakes in Texas, where I grew up, because I had convinced myself that a bull shark would swim up from the Gulf of Mexico and like, bite my leg off or whatever, <laughs> even though like all the lakes are like landlocked there, because they're all like man-made lakes or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I just had this I- incredibly irrational fear of everything nature, and it, it it's weird because I was consuming a lot of nature content. Like I was always watching, like religiously watching Animal Planet and uh, like Discovery or whatever. Um, but then around fifteen, I like a switch just flipped in my head, and it was just no fear at all anymore. Uh, I think I like overcorrected, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> um, because yeah, I grew up. my My parents had a they had a pet store, so I kind of grew up around animals still. And then yeah, I just started working there. Right after I got over my fear or whatever, and sort of just dove in really deep. And I was like, wait, these are actually really cool. You know, I was terrified of them, but I knew a lot about them because I don't know. I guess it's like watching horror movies, even if you're scared to death of horror movies, because it's like, I, I don't know. I like to be scared. So, yeah, I just got really deep into it. And, you know, the... the cascade of events, the little stepping stones that led me into keeping animals in, you know, terrariums or whatever, to this more scientific way of doing it to, you know, straight up research nowadays. It's It's been a fun journey and an interesting one for sure.
0: <laughs> so have you had a chance to like reflect on or pinpoint what that event must have been where it just switched your mind from being deathly scared to not i mean that is such a huge change and what what do you think that might have been
1: yeah it's weird because i i can remember like the day where i said i'm just gonna do it uh basically someone had like a big snake like a boa or a python or something and they asked me if i wanted to hold it, and i was like yes and i don't know but i i think there was a a small cascade of things before that where i was saying like i was kind of staring at these animals and watching people interact with them. And I was like, wait a second, they're, they're interacting with, you know, a a snake or whatever. And it's not trying to bite their face off. It's just doing nothing. It's just kind of chilling there. And I was thinking like, well, you know, I have this frame of reference of, you know, this extreme fear mongering nature style shows, Uh, you know, like top 10 deadliest is what I watched (laughs) growing up. You know, and it's like, it's like, yeah, they they make praying mantids seem, like, incredibly terrifying. And then seeing them in real life and being like, it's not that bad. And then once I just, I guess, dove in, I was like, oh, no, it's whatever I was thinking was just completely incorrect. So, yeah, it's, but I, I really don't know if there was, like, one big thing that changed it. I think it was just a series of small things that mm. led me down this path.
0: Mm. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, especially having that moment too, where, you know, like you faced your fear, like, yes, I will hold that snake. Like, mm-hmm. I will. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I didn't die. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's my threshold. It's like, I didn't die. So it must be okay. you
0: know. <laughs> so then what did you happen to do after that? So you have this newfound passion for herbs from what we talked about. So, you know, like your snakes, your amphibians, your reptiles, that kind of stuff. Um, so then what did you end up doing after that?
1: Yeah. So I started, like I mentioned, I started like working in my family's pet store and eventually I was like managing the entire reptile section or the entire, I guess, creepy crawly section because we tarantulas and everything chucked into there. But it was, it was really interesting because like at our, at our height, I think, I think I noted we had over 200 herps and little critters and stuff just caring for them. So I got really into like the husbandry and captive care aspect of things for a, for a good while. But um, once I started going to, I went to undergrad afterwards at a Texas a did a degree in wildlife and fishery sciences. And I, I sort of saw my own interest changing from a captive husbandry to this more field biology, wildlife conservation side of things. So it's been an interesting, I don't know, there's words for it, I <laughs> change, different uh, comparison. Because, I mean, there, there's issues with the pet trade pretty like that, go in direct conflict with like wildlife conservation. But me seeing like the back end of it, I think, really gave me an awesome frame of reference for what I don't know what what these animals are really like in many different scenarios, both in the wild and in captivity.
0: Yeah, I can totally see that, and and I feel the exact same way because you know every single little girl or little boy growing up is like, I want a monkey, you know, <laughs> I <laughs> right. I mean, I have a family that recently moved here and the little girl, she's six years old and she's like, I want to be a conservationist, grow up. Here's my future pet monkey. Brooke, isn't this what I want to do? And like, I mean, I don't know why we all have that desire, but I completely understand. Mm-hmm. And then you have this like moment where you're like, oh shit, I don't want to be a part of that anymore because that's mm-hmm. not actually how we conserve wildlife by having them in a cage somewhere
1: or you know yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly and i mean like for me it's always the biggest issue is the um taking from the wild because in oh my god so many yeah. ways it's it's just unregulated or if it is you know every there, every community has sub communities and blah 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 but within like a lot of the captive husbandry with herps there's this weird like okayness with smuggling and it's like it, it's very odd It's it's something that i've like really kind of tried to come to grips with and some of it feels a little like I don't know. Like, I don't know the right word. I think the best word is like colonialist. It's like mm. so weird. It's just like, like, you actually like, wh- go
0: down this. Like, let, let's, let's yeah. actually talk about this more because I'm more, um, so like big cats are my thing. So I'm mm. very well aware of how big cats and those kind of body parts get smuggled and into the illegal pet trade and just mm-hmm. wildlife trade in general. So yeah. Talk more about this. How does that work with herps in the trade?
1: Yeah. So it's like, I, I can give a really good specific example because I did this, I did this post a while back um, talking about the Bornean earless monitor. So these are, um, they're in Borneo, so you know, Southeast Asia, and they have never been legally exported from the country. Never. But they are in zoos and in private collections around the world. So, you know, the only route for that is through smuggling. A few zoos, I, I won't name specific zoos because I don't want to some do it really bad i I know aizu japan was really bad they definitely just smuggled it or paid smugglers and it's they i I brought it up and i was like hey this is like really messed up there's no way to legally get these creatures and they're kept in captivity and they're you know for a lot of money i think at their height they were going for around ten thousand dollars per individual whoa Um, yeah it's an insane amount of money and you know relatively small, you could shove 40 of them in a bag. And hey, that's a lot of money. But I remember when I posted about it, because there was a paper that came out, I want to say maybe nature conservation, it was some conservation paper talking about it and like really going in depth about here's, they were found in zoos, here's how they acquired the animals, they bought them from private collectors. These were smuggled animals that were seized and then put in a zoo and, you know, seized animals is totally different. I'm all for that, putting them in zoos and breeding them or whatever. But it was weird because when I brought it up, a lot of them were saying, well, a lot of, a lot of people in the comments, a lot of husbandry, captive keepers were going off like, well, you know, who, who cares because the country is destroying their native, you know, land. So like, if, if we don't take them, they're going to be lost forever. And I'm like, no, that's a terrible justification because like, look at where you live. Um, (laughs) Like if you're, most of the areas are in the U S or Europe, which have, destroyed a lot of their land so it's like so that does that give them a right to come in and like take our wolves or you know take our moose or you know it's like it's such a bad argument and it's just this ideology that we are better because we're like a western society so that we can take these animals illegally instead of like actually helping the countries where they like where these animals live and helping them do conservation efforts because a lot of them were saying like oh we're going to take them and captive breed them for conservation which i hate that argument because there has yet to be a, aside from zoos, there has not been like a pet, like private individual captive husbandry within reptiles and amphibians that was bred for conservation where it actually worked. It has never happened. Every time someone gives me an example, it's a zoo that does it, not a private individual. And so they're saying that's what they're doing, but it's like, no, you're not, you're, you're doing it. And then you're selling them for $10,000 to another private collector. You're not getting them back into Borneo because you can't. And also, there's there's organizations in Borneo that are doing that. Why not support them? The people who actually live there and actually know where these you know animals are from and how they interact. And you know, you sitting on the internet in Germany or Florida or whatever, somehow know better than them? It's like, what 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 type of mentality is that? It's just not like you know if you're if you're fine with smuggling just say you're fine with smuggling like don't don't you know don't try to act like you're morally superior because you smuggled like it makes no sense it's it's just wrong it's ah uh, cuz i mean yeah you could say that about rhinos as well like ah we should take all the rhinos out of africa cuz the habitats going away or something it's like what what are you talking about like you know changing the species often makes the narrative a little bit more clear
0: oh my gosh that's such a great example and there's just like so many fantastic points that you made there. And I have to I mean I feel the exact same way with big cats too. And everyone's I'm so against private ownership of big cats for well because one, they are significantly bigger than a (laughs) than a little newt or something. But also it's the same thing because like you know so many of these organizations where the laws are pretty lax in the states are like oh this is for conservation tigers are you know going extinct in the wild and if we didn't have them here then they would be you know dead and it's like
1: yeah oh yeah i'm, I'm sure joe exotic did a lot of stuff for conservation oh, like come on you know like joe <laughs> yeah I mean, but it's right? the same
0: thing but it's the same thing and also too i really love that you brought up that mentality this like power dynamic mentality. I'm actually currently reading a book right now that's going really deep into that about, I mean, I, I got to reread the part so I can't like go too in depth intellectually about it, but just talking about how there's definitely almost this bullying or just colonialistic mindset of we know better than you and a lot of different conservation organizations mm-hmm. or just that mindset with some older ways of things and like the example it's called rewilding the world by like caroline Mm -hmm. frazier is what i'm reading right now and she's just going really in depth about like trans frontier parks and so these trans border parks is like using conservation as a way to help with political instability and like it and all all these things the good things that can go with that and just talking about how like kruger and his white white colonialistic ways is pretty much a bully to like Mozambique and all these other areas Mm -hmm. and I just I just damn I just was so ignorant about all this type of stuff and how I mean this was not too long ago this is like the early 2000s when she was writing this book and all this stuff was going Mm -hmm. on I'm just like how is this still such a thing so much after uh, you know apartheid and everything and and that's a really good example like we know better than you and (laughs) and how many other places are just like what are you what the hell are you doing to your wolves like you finally like have some like success with your predators yeah. and like wildlife conservation <laughs> yeah. and then out out of nowhere on you know you're just going to devastate 90 percent in some of your states of your wolf populations like it's the exact yeah. same mentality it's like we're so hypocritical we are so oh, yeah. hypocritical and i don't think people want to admit that
1: no and it makes no sense and it's like i mean i've because I, you know, I've done some work in Central America before, and I've worked with, you know, interns from all over, and I, I've had that before, where it's like they, they didn't, you know, explicitly say we know better, but implicitly they were very much the, like we know better than the guy who like lives here, who has like been a uh, jungle guide his entire life, and I'm like, bro, you grew up in like, you grew up in Toronto, like you do not know <laughs> the jungle, like what are you talking about, like like no, you don't know, and it's like it's just because like oh because you have an education, okay like th- that doesn't mean anything. I know a lot of stupid people in academia. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't do any good. Um, It's just like, you could learn from everyone. And the people who like actually know their areas, know their, like the, the place where they grew up, they know it really well. And just because their knowledge is informal, doesn't make it wrong. Like <laughs>
0: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't, I think I was afraid i having a conversation with somebody and I was like, yeah, try some academic somebody to come into my little Podonk forested Appalachian home and see how far they get mm-hmm. well, as opposed to talking with somebody who knows the area. Like if that's what like, and this is just like one specific example coming from somewhere where one, there needs to be a lot more conservation work and two, it's a very misunderstood place. It's kind of like mm-hmm. the, I mean, Dave Chappelle calls like where I grew up with dusty white people like that's <laughs> just like. That's what he calls Uh, him. Like, just, he's like the dusty white people I've just gotten completely forgotten. And Mm. (laughs) so any stand up you hear from Dave Chappelle, I'm like, yeah, he's just talking about where I grew up. And, (laughs) but that's like an example too. It's like, how are you going to know better? And like, that's why I'm so cognizant when I travel. I mean, every single person I meet, I'm like, please tell me Mm. everything that you know, share with me everything that you know, because. Yeah, I might have lots of letters behind my name, but I don't know freaking jack shit. I've never been here. Right. Like, I don't know what your problems are. I don't know your life history. I don't know what it's like to have a lion in my backyard or a hyena or every single mm. thing that's deadly that wants to kill me and my family and my cattle. Like, I have no clue.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's about listening at the end of the day. Like, that that's all it is. And it's like... Yeah, it's something I've just never really understood because it's like, like I go to a new spot. I don't know anything about it. Like, like, but it's this, it's this weird mentality that I don't really know where it comes from of like superiority over other areas and other people. Like, like, it's just, it's just it's an odd mentality that is really pervasive in the sciences. I mean, you hear about like parachute science quite a bit. Where people just go into an area, do all the research, and then publish under, just for themselves, not giving any like anything of benefit to the people who actually live there. And it's just like you're not you're not helping the area. Like you really care about conservation, you really care about conservation in this area. You need to do more than like just add publications for your CV. You need to help support the area more and more. And that doesn't mean by doing more research and setting up like trips for yourself. That means like actually engaging with the community. That means actually like, like working together to take their knowledge and your specific knowledge of like how to, I don't know, like, like, yeah, they have knowledge of the area. They know where to find the animals. They know how to like track. And like, you may know how to, how to publish a paper and do like weird statistics that no one really knows what they really mean. But like, like it's, everyone can bring something to the table, but it's this mentality of, no, I have to bring everything to the table. And that's just so wrong.
0: Right. And, and yeah, that's just such another great example. Because when I was in Nepal and I released my coexisting with giants series, I sat down with a lot of people where that was their exact feeling. They're like, we don't want to talk to a whole bunch of people that come here. For that exact reason but like okay so you can come in and i'm going to waste my time talking to you you are going to get all the accolades and whatever and then you're going to leave and then also mm-hmm. another one of my really good friends who he has his phd um and he's an incredible guy an incredible guy and he just talks about how much academia is broken in that sense mm-hmm. where there's this constant pressure to publish for various reasons and he's like it's like the whole thing needs to change like the mm-hmm. whole like for profit model on publishing science that should be open access into <laughs> yeah. like the way that schools get funding for like the research that their people are doing. And I mean, it's, it's a whole cascade of things. Yeah. I don't know how we tackle that right. one, but it's, so much of this has been brought to my attention because I did not go down that route. I was really mm-hmm. thought that I was going to be go, do- go down like a PhD route too. And then I found other ways to help. And I was like, I oh, like this better. And then the more, <laughs> I, and then the more I learn and talk with people who are like in the trenches of academia, they're like, it's so broken. But I don't know what the hell to do. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: yeah, you know? I mean, like, like with with these like going to other countries and publishing, it's it's so bullshit. Like, it's so easy just to add someone as an author. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if you just add like someone on as an author. Like, hey, the people that helped you actually find these animals add them as an author, like give them some credit, like help them succeed more now in their careers as well. It's like, it doesn't do anything. They're like, well, we put them in the acknowledgements one. How many people read the acknowledgements? Like I never do. Right. And it's like, that doesn't help them at all. Like, you know, you're not going to put on your CV. I was in the acknowledgements of a paper. No, like, come on, you're gonna, but yeah, but if their name is on there and like, they, you know, now there's a, like, they actually see that, Oh, you know, we helped out and now we have a paper Like, I mean, it's, we we talk about it in academia a lot. There's so many academics that are like, yeah, I do this with my undergraduates. They're, they're helping out in the lab. I want to, you know, I put their name in the middle of the author list on the paper. They maybe helped write a few paragraphs or, you know, did something to get the authorship. But it's like, okay, take that exact same idea and apply it to wherever you're doing research. Because it literally costs you nothing to give someone the credit they deserve. Like
0: exactly exactly (laughs) and going to where I've been around the world and because I travel for nature phenomena so I'm going around to see the amazing beautiful areas and wildlife that this world has to offer I'm not going into the jungle by myself
2: Mm -hmm. I don't
0: know what the hell (laughs) I'm doing like there's always somebody who's a local who knows an insane amount more I mean People, how do you think BBC gets their footage? Mm. It's not these cameramen that are just coming in and getting this insane stuff. There are local people on the ground that are taking them to these places because they know the wildlife phenomena so Mm. well that that is what's that's actually what's going on,
1: (laughs) right? You know, right? (laughs) Yeah, and it's like I think uh, I think it's Monday. Here is uh, I forget the right the right name that they're using i think it's i think it's going to be indigenous people's day because it's also columbus day and it's like ah, ha, ha, like got him um but it's like i uh, got because I'm, I'm preparing a few posts about it but i think that the statistic is like 80 percent of conservation land is managed in some way by indigenous people like it's like so hey you know maybe you should include them because uh the place you want to save they really want to save it too
0: yeah <laughs> but, it's their home
1: yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know, why wouldn't you want to save their home? And it's like, like that's, that, that's actually a great point because if you see it, as like, this is their home. People start to understand that a little bit better instead of like, this is just land that people happen to live on. No, it's like people want to save their home, like work with them to save their home. If you come into their home and say, Hey, you're, you're living wrong in your own home. Like no one's gonna listen to you. If some dude broke into your back door and said, "Yo, you're 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 like you're salting your eggs wrong," like no no no, everyone's <laughs> gonna they're gonna you're gonna kick them out because they're like this guy's an asshole. Like it's the exact same mentality. It's, mm-hmm. And it's like most of it doesn't have to be so complicated. That that's what I don't. But for some reason, for a lot, it is. But I, I think a lot of it is really implicit. I really don't think a lot of it is like we're intentionally going into oh, an area. Absolutely. You know right. But it's like, yeah, there, there's just a lot of implicit bias and a lot of ways that we are trained, and also just not being aware that of how your actions are impacting these, you know, these people in these ways. So,
0: and I hope to, because I'm almost every single person our age that is a scientist in some way, shape, or form. I'm starting to hear this exact same sentiment. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, granted, that might be biased because I don't. Like to deal with assholes. And so I just kind of like, (laughs) just don't deal with them. So this might be a slight bias because I just don't talk to those people. But I mean, I'm getting that from everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. no matter what they do, no matter what their role is in conservation. I think that now that our generation is getting to a point now where we're seeing this stuff, and it might be because we are so connected. You know, I chat with my friends all the time now in Nepal that are like my age. And then we connected really well. And so like, that's a different conservation level. You know what I mean? Like, because that's a different connection when Mm -hmm. you're connecting so well with other people that are your age and you're actually seeing it from their point of view and their perspective. And so, I mean, I I don't know what to do about this. I mean, it's not like all old white men are bad people. That's not it at all. It's just that it's mostly that demographic that is in these higher positions that are dictating stuff and again I mean I because I feel like a lot of like just that demographic has gotten a really bad rep recently and there are still good people doing good things it's just yeah I I don't know what it's going to take and it's so hard for you know our generation to get like a 10 year professor position to start Mm -hmm. to mix in new ideas and new ways right. of doing things. Yeah, I don't have any solution at all. This is just like an
2: observation. No, no, of course not. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like,
1: it's like yeah, this is like always the problem with the academia. It's like, I mean, I, I've had so many like talks about diversity committees that are all white. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, maybe y'all should look inwards before you start trying to make change too. Because it's, I don't know. It's just, there. There there is like, it's, it's like that tricky balance between actually doing something about it and then saying you're doing something about it but not actually doing anything it's you know that 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 performative allyship versus actual allyship and like most of it is like i always I always I've, I've told friends before hey man stop trying to relate and just listen because you can't relate like like you need to stop you need to stop it's not the same and like you're trying so hard to say like you've experienced discrimination too as like a white male it's like you know maybe listen to th- maybe listen to her and like actually listen to like what she's saying. And then it, cause it's not the same. It's not the same. And yeah, but it's like what you were saying, you were, you were talking to, we we now live in a more connected society. We actually can talk to people from a diverse background very easily. I mean, we are all two clicks away from someone on the other side of the uh, world. It's, it's honestly incredible, but yeah, there's this, saying you want to do something, saying you support it. And like, you know, I I firmly believe they do support it, but they're not actively making efforts to change. And instead, they're trying to be watchdogs and performing about how great they are. But no, it's just like, hey, support it, be chill about it, and like, make sure that you are doing the best that you can do um, instead of, you know. Crying from the top of the ivory tower about how bad it is down there, like <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> like look how bad it is for them over there, and you know. Yep.
1: Yeah, but I don't want to go over there. No, no, no. Oh God, no. no. it's Bad over there. <laughs> like,
0: I just still want to go home to my five hundred thousand dollar home and and my <laughs> Mercedes, and I don't want to give that
2: up.
1: Right, 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 right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, even just today, my friend Injajee from India. I have a WhatsApp from him currently on my phone. He just told me that India is opening back up and he's like, oh. November 15th, you can start bringing your clients back. Like, let's go see some tigers. You know, like, oh, like cool. that's how connected we are now. Like, yeah. My friend G. And he's just like, we're open November 15th. <laughs> like, like, It's,
2: just, it's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it's so cool. It's, it, it's so cool. Like it, I really appreciate this interconnectedness. I mean, of course there's like, the bad parts of this social media landscape that we have, blah, 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 misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of good that comes from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, just, just in terms of like accessing science, like I don't have to go to a library, pull out an index card and like try to find it on a shelf and then open it up and, you know, write down my notes. It's just three button clicks, hoping my proxy for my university works and then I have, (laughs) I have the research.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, Uh, and also too, as this like open access concept, Becomes more the norm, which yeah. I feel like it's definitely starting. Because now me be me being a scientist, but no longer being with an organization, I no longer have access to 75-80% of the papers out there. And it mm-hmm. pisses me off. I've gone on oh, yeah. so many rants. Cause there's like, I mean, even for this show, like there's a lot of episodes that I really want to do and put together. But Mm -hmm. since I know how to do proper research, I don't feel like I'll be able to actually do those episodes until I have access to way more peer-reviewed papers. Mm -hmm. And it's just the irony.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, like, the the whole, like, academic publishing thing is complete horseshit. Like, I mean, like, I am tied to a university. I am, like, (laughs) I do biology at a California State University university. I do not have access to nature. Like... (laughs) Like, I have to go through like friends or email the author or just use Sci-Hub or something to like get access to like one of the biggest journals for my field, because it's too expensive. And I think there's some stuff about making a statement like, yeah, we don't really want to support a journal that costs $12,000 to publish in. like That right. we don't have to pay access for. like
0: Exactly. God. Exactly. I mean, I'll, like, i all like, I see this awesome headline, I'm like, oh, I really need to read that paper. It's, like, a brand new finding or something or an area that I'm really interested in, whether it's, like, geographic or just, like, a science area. Mm-hmm. And I, like, click on it, and it's, like, rent it for a 48-hour access for, like, 60 bucks. And I'm just, like, fuck
1: you. <laughs> right? It's, it's just absolutely bonkers to me. And it's, like... And it's like, people are always like, oh, well, they must have to do a lot. You know, like, they must have to pay for a lot. No, they don't. They have, their their profit margin is, like, two to three times higher than traditional magazines whose sole goal is to make money. Like, and then what? Oh, yeah, they're paying their volunteer editors. Oh, wait, are, exactly. are they paying to publish? No, 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 we're paying to publish. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's like, oh, then then we're paying to access the things that we published. Like, it's it's... I mean, you, you hear stories like somewhat often of someone paying to publish in a journal and then they cannot access their own publication because their university doesn't have the access to that journal or whatever. It's like, what is this? Gross. That's why I, yeah, guess,
0: and- I hope we just keep like pushing this open access form. Mm-hmm. Like this yeah. should be open access. Everyone should right. have access to knowledge.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's like other publishers that are like, like, okay, I understand like, Hey, if you're, if you're having this volunteer basis, you're running on tight profit margins, blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, they have to pay for the journals. They have to pay for the upkeep of the servers. You know, they have to, of course, pay someone who's running this stuff. I'm all for that. Like, I understand that. But, uh, when you're making billions of dollars in profit, like not an exaggeration, it's billions every year. Thanks Wiley. It, It doesn't make sense. And then you see these open access things like the, the Pensoft open access publishing Ecosystem. Theirs are like, you know, I think because I published a couple things and there's some smaller like notes and they were like 200 bucks to publish and it's open access. I'm like, oh, yeah, I feel okay with that. I can easily find that funding, but it's like I want to publish open access in something like Evolution or Nature, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Like I have to write a grant that's like almost more than my salary. No, no, come on. No, I'm not. <laughs>
2: Just
0: to get the paper no. out there.
1: Yeah. it's a broken system (laughs)
0: it is it is but the more conversations we have about it though and the more that people get aware of it hopefully it just you know stems more need for change right you're like we this this is broken this is so broken why can someone who's a trained biologist aka me have no access and even you because your school doesn't have the Mm. correct partnership with these journals, then you can't even uh-huh. uh, access stuff for your right. knowledge and what you're doing. Speaking of now that we just like bitched about academia, for like half <laughs> half- <laughs> <laughs> you're actually doing some really, really cool stuff. Some stuff that like, well, one, I have not had anyone on the podcast chat about uh, chat about, so I'm really, excited to get into this but if you wouldn't mind just just start just start sharing with us what exactly you are looking at for your masters right now in San Diego in your grad program like what is it that you are what are the creatures what's the bigger idea what's the questions let's really start to dive into that
1: yeah yeah so it's it's interesting so if, if, like, I take the title of the work, right? It's a phylogenetic regionalization of Middle American herpetofauna, which is just literally nothing but jargon, and it <laughs> makes sense to, I think, only me and maybe my advisor. But the, uh, you know, we're still not one hundred percent sure because, whatever. <laughs> but basically, what I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take all of the herpetofauna, so the reptiles and amphibians within Middle America, which politically is Mexico down to Panama. I extended the borders because I'm like, you shouldn't do biological studies based on political boundaries. Because animals don't care about the border, but uh, basically trying to infer regions of shared evolutionary history for all of these critters that are out there. I don't actually know how many species I'm working with because the the, the number keeps changing. I I feel comfortable. my my last time my last like preliminary whatever results was about twelve hundred species but it might expand up to over 2,000 if I can just get the data for them. It, it's a stupid amount of data, but, but basically, so it's, it's these regions, right? So we, we take their evolutionary history, this information about how are species related to one another, how are, I don't know, the, the, the frogs related to these salamanders, right? Um, and then we use that information along with where are these species found throughout this entire massive range to say, hey, there is this pocket in the Yucatan Peninsula that has its own unique little bits of evolutionary history. And then, oh, there's this another one right at around the uh, Sierra Madre Occidental that is has its own little unique pocket. So you start to see these little, I mean, they, they look like patches on a map. And I have those patches. I'm trying to make them a little bit better, add in more data to just do it, basically. But once we have that, we can start to try and piece together a story of, okay, well, why are these patches, these patches, why are these regions a a region? And there's all these different processes and theories as to why It's, it's a relatively new methodology. So there's a lot of ideas and like guesses, but then there's also a lot of me trying to disentangle a lot of the processes. So. This is actually a—it's um, sort of a redo of this older project from the '60s through the '80s from uh, Savage, and his whole thing was, why do we have the diversity of reptiles and amphibians that we do in Central America? So, you know, Central America just basically being the countries. Some people include Mexico, like the southern parts of Mexico, but the areas from Panama upwards at the tropical regions, and his whole thing was dispersal or vicarians so dispersal being they're coming from north america south america and they're just meeting up in the middle basically or this vicarians idea where they're they're actually they're already in the area they're not there's not new species necessarily coming in but they're just in an area and then over time they're diversifying and you know one species becomes many species and his his conclusion was that yes there were dispersal events we know there's dispersal the great american biotic interchange from Things from South America came up north. Things from North America came up, came down south. But there was a lot of vicarians as well. There was a lot of that speciation once those dispersal events happened. And that's a potential thing. There's like a whole bunch of theories as to how that could have happened, blah, blah, blah. But that study was done decades ago and has been sort of a a really landmark case for biogeography, this this study of where are species found and why. But it hasn't really been updated. So, and there was some, you know, back then the data wasn't near as good as what we have today. It's was, he was using largely genera level instead of species level trends. It was, I mean, at the end of the day, yes, he's incorporating information from, from mountain ranges and climate and other systems. Like I think he included trees as well, but he's essentially saying drawing lines on a map almost by hand using a lot of data, but it's like. I think this is what I think we can consider this a region. This makes sense based on this versus this method that I'm really working on. It is completely blind to whatever biases I have. Like if I think that they should split around this mountain range, this method doesn't even consider that mountain range at all. It just says, hey, there are species here that are related to species over here. We're going to make them a region. These species are totally different. We're going to make these two different regions. So it, it's this really awesome way of one, updating a really pivotal piece of research with just the massive amount of data that we have nowadays, but then also trying to disentangle those same questions, but with better understanding of how these systems came to be. We have a much better understanding of the plate tectonics in the area because it's stupidly complex we have more understanding of how did species come in particular clades like i don't know like we know how these specific salamanders came through and we have a much better idea now so it's this sort of it's it's an update of an older project but done in such a different way with so much data that i'm just so freaking excited to like really start to get some good answers because right now i'm just in data processing data collection and uh trying to just add as much data as possible to this system.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. And so let's really get into this process. So Uh you keep saying data. Obviously, you Mm -hmm. are not going out to every single hotspot of biodiversity and doing census. How do you get your data?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. So it's it's, it's so interesting because my entire background is ecology, like going out into the field. And this, this project has zero field work. And it kind of drives me nuts. But basically, I really only need two bits of data. I need where a species found and their, uh, their phylogenetic history, which is just their evolutionary history. How are they related? The, the, the phylogenetic data is something that I'm currently working on. And that's pulling together a bunch of different genes and forming a tree using these uh, theories. There, there's already really great phylogenies out there. I want to make it really robust. I want to have a lot of species on there. I want to do it a little bit better just, just for my own sanity. That one is just a bunch of code, just a bunch of pouring through databases and putting it all together, using the theory to say, hey, these two species are more related together than this species, or that. that's that. But the interesting thing for me is the occurrence data set. So where are species found? And for that, I'm really using two primary sources there's the IUCN, which is the uh, big organization. They're the ones that say like, hey, this species is endangered. This species is, uh, we shouldn't even be worried about it. They're least concerned. And they have range maps for a lot of the species down there. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So I'm using that data. But they don't always have data for all species or their their range maps are very very old and i mean i have range maps in there from 2004 Mm. uh, so almost 20 more years of collecting data collecting information on where these species are found so i'm using a different database this global biodiversity information facility GBIF. um it is it is stupidly awesome basically (laughs) it is this database that pulls from all these other databases of where species are found. So if you ever use the app like iNaturalist, where you go out and you're like you take a picture of a species and say, hey, I found it here if it goes to research grade that is now in GBIF. If you collected information on where species were found for, for an atlas project or like a survey or a published piece that's in GBIF. If you collected a specimen for a museum, that's in GBIF. So there's a there's a few billion records I think in there and I just pull all of that for, for middle America and clean it because it's super messy. Uh, There's a lot of mistakes, but we know where the mistakes are. So doing that, incorporating them in with the IUCN data and doing that enables me to actually get this really cool occurrence data set for species that are really rare or hard to find, which is especially with hard to find that's a lot of the reptiles and amphibians especially in middle america it's 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 actually kind of nuts to see the biases because you'll you see the US Mexico border very clearly very very clearly lots of species found in the US not as much found in Mexico costa rica is just like it's just like a spotlight because there's so many people that go there and like i naturalist things or whatever and it's had decades and decades of research and then you'll see places like like El Salvador you can you can almost make out the country borders uh, because <laughs> it's just not as well researched so it's it it, it which is why i'm using both data sets to get the best of both worlds um but yeah so it's it's basically using a data set that starts out with i think i have 3 or i think it's 3 or 4 million rows just we found a species, we found a species, we found a species, we found a species. Cleaning that up, making it something I can actually use, and then combining it with thousands of shape files from the IUCN, plotting them on a map, and then, I mean, getting in the nitty-gritty of the actual method, I, like, divide the map into thousands of tiny little squares, and then for every little square, I'm like, oh, what species are found in this tiny square? And then i like, okay, now look at the square next to it. What species are found in that little square? Okay, how similar are these two squares now? And then you do that for every single square, against every single square and you get like a a super ugly table of these squares are really cool they're they're really closely related these two squares have nothing in common um like the table is so big i can't open it in excel on my computer because it just crashes it every time (laughs) it's just one of those like i have it in r i do all my stuff in r and i just like it's just like it exists but i can't exactly see the little nuances (laughs) at the end of the day it's just it's just a giant cell that has like values from zero to one so it I mean, yeah. What am I going to see? Species or uh, grid cell 362 is 0.74, you know, similar to grid cell 3209. Like, eh, it doesn't matter. But then you do all the analyses and processing to cluster all these bits of data together to form these. They're called phylo regions, phylogenetic regions. And it's so cool. But gosh, I I don't know where the rabbit hole started, but I know I went (laughs) down it. So.
0: You you went down it just like I hoped you would. Um, you explained so much, which is wonderful. So I guess now, how is this applicable? Meaning like, mm-hmm. so at the end of the day, you have this, okay, let, let me actually reverse. Mm-hmm. We're not even going to get to that part yet. Cause my next cool. question is gonna be before it what is like what is going to be the answer so you know you are defending your thesis you have this thing that you've written what is it that you hope to find and have you already found things so like so like mm-hmm. what is the this is the mm-hmm. answers that i'm trying to find for this right. set of questions
1: yeah yeah so the once once we have these regions right that's just really the first step which is you know the, the first step has like 75 substeps, but the first step, um, then we will take those regions and try to figure out, OK, well, the, the why are these regions? And there's a lot of processes that could happen. So there's this idea of endemism, right, that there's a, there's actually different types of endemism where endemism is like something is restricted to a certain range. But nowadays, there's this idea that there's this thing called paleoendemism and neoendemism, right? There's this new version of endemism where these species are endemic because they just they're they're very recently evolved. Uh, that's that's not great terminology. They they recently speciated. Um, <laughs> so now they, they just haven't had like the time, the the time over you know thousands and thousands of millions of years to spread out versus this paleoendemism, which is the one I'm actually really interested in where this species or these groups of species may have been widespread, but with changing climates, with, uh, with different, with even plate tectonics, because this is the scale of time we're talking about their ranges just got so, so constrained. And now they are these almost very unique clades that are a little bit different than everything else. And these are often like found at the tops of mountaintops. Um, There's a lot of salamanders in my data set that you find just on mountaintops throughout the, uh, the Asera Madras. And it's, really interesting so those have different effects some of them split regions some of them can make regions kind of form together they muddy the water and that's like the deep dive on like one of the processes but there's also things like how speciation occurred did it occur sympatrically where things are speciating within one area or did it occur like allopatrically in different areas like the classic example is going around a mountain and now it's like species a is on the west side and species b is on the east side there's processes just like dispersal ability how quickly can species disperse i mean if you're comparing a salamander that kind of moves slowly maybe doesn't really leave the log for weeks at a time compared to something like a bird that is just like ah, i'm gonna you know go down to mexico i'll see you in canada in a couple months like it's (laughs) You know, it it drastically changes how these regions can really uh, de- delineate from each other. So, though I'm I'm trying to basically look at all of those in concert together and try to see, hey, what what are we what what is going on here? Why are we seeing these regions? So it's basically a series of tests to figure that out, and that for me is just very interesting. But the the, the why is this like why do we want to actually do this? Like, why? Because at the end of the day, it's like, okay, that's cool, like, neo-paleo endemism, whatever. But it's so what? Which is why I kind of started with the paleo endemism, because it shows that, hey, with a changing climate, these species are becoming more restricted and we're having these unique pockets, these areas, say, just west of Mexico City, that have their own unique evolutionary history. They have, something about them is different than the rest of middle America. And whenever we are trying to actually make uh, conservation goals for example we we've often thought about conservation is about saving just threatened species which yes it should be of course like save the species that are most in peril but not all species are equivalent right each species has its own evolutionary history its own story that led it from you know where it was with a common ancestor millions of years ago to where it is today and if we say if we look at like i mean like elephants are a great example because they're distinct there there there's really nothing like them they they're just different there's not like there's not like 35 different species of elephants and maybe one or two are threatened what we're seeing is that oh no these elephants are unique we should save them and they're threatened so where my project is coming in is it's actually trying to look at these pockets of unique evolutionary history as a whole, not just for a specific species, but say, hey, for some reason, this area is very unique and it contains a lot of threatened species. You can actually add in a metric. I believe it's called edge. I think it's evolutionary distinctiveness. And I always forget the G and the <laughs> E, um, but it's saying like, how distinct are these, are these animals in this area and how, oh. Evolution distinct and globally endangered. That's Mm. what it was. So yeah, it's combining like how extinct or how 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 unique they are with how endangered they are, how threatened are they to give you a metric, and I can apply that directly to my regions to say, hey, this particular region has an immense amount of very unique biota that is found nowhere else in the world, and it's very threatened. So not just a single species, but the entire region, which I think is so so important. Because I'm not a I'm not necessarily a big fan of single species conservation. I think that in order to save a species, you need to save the entire ecosystem around it. But at the end of the day, we're selling stickers for elephants, for rhinos, for uh, you know, we're we're not selling it like save the save the grassland. You know, it's like <laughs> there's uh, maybe it's just because you know we can't look into the eyes of a of a grass and be like ah. Uh, you know I, I relate with you but but yeah so i'm very big on that habitat conservation but also understanding that species are different species are inherently unique and some are more threatened and more unique than others so but trying to take a whole i don't know whole pie approach to it instead of just p- taking a slice i want to say like ah this area this is what we need to save and i think through this methodology where i'm using This intense amount of data using like a lot of different metrics and actually trying to understand how did they get to where they are today? Why are they this? Why are they unique? Why is this area unique? I think it adds a really incredible narrative to their story. This isn't just an area that's, you know, been impacted by logging and it probably is as well, but it's saying that hey, this area has had 300 million years of this incredible evolution. The mountains have formed and the mountains have like sort of uh, been eroded downwards and through that species were that originally were widespread have now found refuge in this mountain range and they're being threatened by logging. They're being threatened. They've survived for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, but now they're being absolutely decimated by 50 years of logging or whatever so i mean i, I see everything as a story so i'm always going to pull them all together but yeah i don't know i'm like we we always talk about the end of the story but we never talk about the beginning and the middle and the the the, the, the battle before the end i guess we're just like yeah the, the trees are going down uh we got we got to save them it's like yeah but like by the time we get the legislative and everything the trees are already gone and so
0: no that's great that's great so it sounds like what you really hope to do is pretty much use this as at least tell me if i'm interpreting this correctly is once you get your data points take this to some sort of conservation body that can make change and be like look you have to do whatever you can to protect this area we have to make new conservation plans that both benefit communities there and the wildlife. And these are the areas we need to focus on. Is that what you're hoping to do? Yeah,
1: yeah. that's a big part of it. And also the thing that I think is often forgotten with science in general is that when you're doing a project, even if you are not collecting the data yourself, you are collecting data together. You're pulling it together into this source. You're making something useful. And I'm really hoping that all of this occurrence data set that I'm working on, cleaning and getting together and making into something that is actually usable can then be used for many other projects it's why i'm doing this phylogenetic tree that evolutionary you know history uh tree and trying to make it very very fine scale to include as many species as possible for this area so that someone else can say hey this guy has a occurrence data set for like i'll just use el salvador again because it keeps popping up on my little radar but um Yeah, it's like El Salvador data set. Well, he has the occurrence data set. He has all this data where the species are found and it's like really curated. It's very cleaned up. It's combining data from all these sources. And he has this this data that I can use to show the evolutionary history of the area. So, and it's open access because my data is definitely going to be able to just, anyone can download it and use it. So then, That's awesome. you know, random Joe Blow person, conservation organization, another researcher, someone else can easily take that information and use it for their own purposes. So even though I'm doing like a massive broad overview, they may take it just for the, the Bolita Glossa salamanders uh, within Panama or, or something and use that data.
0: Oh my gosh. I could, this could be really huge. I mean, which obviously if you didn't you weren't, you wouldn't have done this if you didn't think that as well. But like, just thinking about that from like, you know, this is rewildology, like rewilding the world, conserving the world, this new form of conservation that I think that we are in the past like couple of years have started to go down. And one of the biggest things is the questions is, is where, mm-hmm. where, how, who, what are the species? Like, mm-hmm. and so and also too, since so many other forms of research are very species specific, and mm-hmm. you are looking at entire regions, I mean, that is so powerful because then there's so many more stakeholders that you all automatically know are going to be mm-hmm. in that because it's an entire region.
2: <laughs> right.
0: It's not right. just and a I, species.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, let's let's pull this habitat out. You know, like like let's take out phyla region number seven, right? let's pull out all of the endangered species in there and put them on like a you know show them hey you have these endangered salamanders are really cool you have these endangered frogs you have you know i i mean i'm only doing the herpetofauna, but we can because i'm developing everything as pipelines that i can just click a button and run an analysis pipeline just takes an input makes an output i could easily do this for mammals if i wanted to so someone else could pull this same mammal data set they pull iucn they pull GBIF. they pull some phylogeny pop it in and they can get their output as well much easier because I've trying to make it easier for them. So now you can say, Hey, this region, this particular area, it's not just, Hey, we want to save, we want to save a Jaguar. Okay. Well, where, where throughout the entire range of Jaguars do we want to save? It's almost too big of a problem to really take apart, but it's like, Hey, within this region, what plot of land can we set aside? What plot of land can we set aside to save, you know, the, the big cats that are endangered here, the, the salamanders, the frogs, something that, yeah, addresses many stakeholders that, you know, you may be a mammal person, you may be a bird person, you may be a frog person, but you can now see, hey, this region has all of those and they're all threatened and they're all needing help in some way. So that that's sort of how I like to see these larger macro evolutionary biogeography studies is it's, it's looking beyond a single species and trying to look at what's going on in this area as a whole.
0: I love that. I'm a, I'm a big, like a big picture person as well. Like I would rather look at the top down, like, okay, so what, you know, what is that one thing that we can do that's going to help the most? Also too, resources don't come easy for our field since we are, mm-hmm. we are battling so many other consumptive industries that might make a bigger buck now versus long-term. So that is something that we always have to fight with. And so just to show that this is valuable. And also too, if you have so many people with different passions, you can bring them all together and that's way more power. There's way more voices that you could be bringing in for like a particular region too. You can bring Mm -hmm. in your social scientists that know how – to like, let's actually see what's, what these communities, what, what issues are they having? What do they Mm -hmm. feel that needs to happen to protect the wildlife in their area and their home? And then also bring in the scientists that, and you know, you, and like, this is the area, everyone put your spotlight on this area and go. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's like, if we're talking about like local communities and whatnot, it's, it's like, it's being able to point on a map and say, this is, you know, I'm probably going to use the region names from other past studies i don't like naming things like i don't know wanna... this is the dylan region you know like um <laughs> but but it's like being able to point on a map and saying this region is somewhere that is unique that has been used in conservation for i mean decades it's like like conserve the amazon rainforest okay i mean most people don't really even know what that really looks like how mm-hmm. big is it what is it but it's it's being able to point and say hey this region is really really unique um like california has the california floristic province it's some of the most unique most unique and most diverse plant life in the world it's i mean similar to like the the cape area of south africa there's just a lot of diversity there but you don't say this species is here, this species there. You don't say, ah, oh, there's like that. You say there's thousands of species here that are so unique and so cool and so incredible. And people relate with that, either because they live in that area. They, they don't necessarily relate to, I live next to this unique species of tree. It's saying, I live in this unique area that has all of these unique elements of it. So that that's why I'm a big fan of just regions and trying to make something that's way bigger, because... If I say, hey, this region is unique. This area needs to be conserved. This area is different for some reason. Anyone who lives in or near that area or has some connection to that area is going to want to save it. They're like, this is my home. I grew up here. I want to save my area that's you know super cool. I, you know, my 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 family lives out there. I want to save it. I want to make sure that if I ever move back there and you know have kids or whatever, that they're seeing this unique thing that I also see as well. So it's you know, from, I guess it's like from a conservation marketing standpoint, it's really good. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hey, we need those stories. And that that's a really mm-hmm. good one too. I mean, I feel the exact same way of like, you know, where I travel and the places that I go to, it's like, I want, I want to bring people there as well. And already like in, in my lifetime, I've seen lots of changes too. And so mm-hmm. it's like, how can we stop the change and help people too. It's like, there's like two dynamics to it. And at least right. having a direction. I mean, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. It's so easy to be overwhelmed. And so, but at least if there's a heading, then it's like, okay, at least we have a spot. We can start right. here. <laughs> and so where did the idea for this come from?
1: Oh, it's so weird. So I was I was in Belize at the time I, I was living there for about six months or so uh, looking for grad programs back in the States. And, you know, I connected with my current advisor, Todd Reeder here at uh, San Diego State. And he just said, Hey, I'm interested in this method, this file regionalization method. That, that was literally it. He just said, mm. I I've thought about it. Here's a paper. Uh, he sent it to me. And I, what, what I love so much about him as an advisor is that he just gave me freedom. He just said, mm. you know, I will help you. I'll help you. But it's your project, and you know I literally could have chosen anywhere in the world. I could have chosen any group. It would, it would have been herps. We're, we're, we're a herp yeah. lab. We, we're, we're, you know, it's like it's always reptiles and amphibians, but but it's it sort of snowballed into this idea of like, well, what data can I get? What what information is available? And what area am I personally invested in? I've most of my work has been in Central America at some point, so that's where I want to study. Then I was like, well. I want to, I want to make it bigger. I want to do middle America, you know, including the, the, the parts of the American Southwest, the desert, the arid regions of Mexico, because I think that's a little bit more interesting. Everyone else is really focused on just the tropics. I'm like, but there's this incredible like transition area from tropical jungle to desert. Like that is so cool to me. And that has like influence on all of these species. So I was like, I'm going to add that in. And then it was, you know, well, what species do I want to do? Because I could have done it with maybe just the frogs, like just, you know, just a uh, high lids or, you know, just like tree frogs or whatever. I was like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to add them all because why not? <laughs> the data is available. The data is there. And worse comes to worse, I can scale it back. It's much easier to scale back than to scale up. Mm-hmm. So I figured start with the most, and I think that actually worked out in my favor because now it's really interesting. We can like split it, and, like look at how are the reptiles different than the amphibians? How did the how did the salamanders diversify or have these regions different than the frogs? So you can start subsetting the data into really cool little groups. You know, it's like I had to stop myself and be like, ah, let me just chuck in mammals. Let me chuck in some birds as well. You know, screw it, see <laughs> what happens. It's you know, it's so easy to make the projects bigger and bigger and bigger. So that, that, that's sort of where the idea came from, was like just an initial seed of here's a cool method. And then I started looking into the, the theory behind it. And I, I love theory. I think it's so fascinating. I think it tells the best stories and just sort of fell in love with the methodology, did an area that I love, did it with a group of animals that I love. So it was just a, a combining of multiple passions that <laughs> led to this project.
0: Good, because it's gonna take passion to get to the finish line, that's for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So when do you think you are going to be done? When is your anticipated graduation or thesis writing yeah. or when, when do you think?
1: Yeah, That's, that's a good question. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I'm, I'm, I'm tentatively planning for the spring of this coming spring, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the spring of 2022. Um, I, I I lost a year. I mean, we all did. Oh, I don't yeah. even know what happened. So yeah, I'm like, I'm like, maybe it'll be over the summer. Maybe I'll just you know vagabond for a bit and finish it up in the fall whenever I want to. And so, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna beat myself up over it. I'd rather just have something that's really, really good quality. Um, right. Which, I mean, even if I. I mean, even where I'm at now, I'm very happy with the results so far. Mm. Um, So it's just, it's, it's more so where do I want to find my stopping point? Where do I want to say this is good enough? The good enough is hard for me because I want to be better. (laughs) I
0: I could totally know that feeling the exact same way. So, so let's switch here. So Mm -hmm. I would include you as an Instagram influencer. You have intentionally built a brand online for, at least to me for the purpose of educating and You know, sharing biology stuff and also connecting on a different level with people who might be in a similar situation. So, let's really dive deep into that. And I guess the first question I have to ask is, why? Why did you decide to do that?
1: Yeah. So that that's a good one because I was, um, yeah. So I I started it very intentionally. You know, it's changed over the years, but basically, I was on a camping trip, a solo trip, which always the best things in my life happen on solo trips. (laughs) And I was just like, you know what? I would really love to show sort of what it means to like do biology, do science, do research, but also talk about and educate it in a more modern way. I I was just realizing that a lot of the education was stuff that, like, I was seeing in nature documentaries from, like, the 80s. Like, it, it was the same type of stuff over and over and over again. It's, you know, species A lives here, species A gets big, species A weighs this much, eats this. And it's just like, okay, that's cool, but, like, there, there's no story. There, there's nothing, like, engaging with it. It's just, it's an encyclopedia. And I wanted to educate based on stories, but also talk about issues in a more modern light. Um I really think conservation has been stuck in the 60s and 70s for forever now. And, you know, no matter what, it's we're still doing the same things for conservation. We're still focusing on single species. And I don't know, I I wanted to bring up issues in a more nuanced way, because there's a lot of really cool, really freaking cool conservation oh god like moral quandaries and ethics Mm. and like should we save this species or like are there species we should just let go extinct or you know like i wanted to like talk about these questions so that that's why i started this science communication account is that one showing the background but also talking about things in a more modern or nuanced light yeah
0: Mm. and when did you when did you have this like epiphany moment when was that
1: it was in my undergrad. And so I think it was four or five years ago, something around there. Four, Whoa. Four, maybe <laughs> more. Gosh, I always forget. There's like, a, I'm like, I'm like, how long have I been in grad school? I'm like, this is my third <laughs> year. And then I was like, oh, shit. And then I took six months off. And then, and then okay, okay. So yeah, it, it's been it's been at least five years. Mm. At least five
0: years. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And takes a lot to build anything. So mm. what strategy did you... Aside, at least. I mean, I'm sure it changed over time as you got into mm-hmm. it, but you're like, okay, epiphany moment. I want to do this. So then how mm-hmm. did you actually start to go down this path in building your platform?
1: Yeah, and it, it definitely has changed. It, it's changed so often. So I, I had a lot of growth really quickly quickly early on. And my, my content was basically just a picture of an animal. I was getting into wildlife photography at the time. So I was taking pictures of the animals and then using the caption to like explain some concept. Usually it was something that I was trying to learn more about myself. And that that's what I did for a few years. And I was posting like two to three times a week at, at best. But, you know, growth slowed the the social media changes all the time and i was struggling with this this idea of taking the pictures because it's just i mean i'm always taking pictures of reptiles and amphibians when it's winter time i can't find anything so it would just be like this awful like you know i definitely had so many you know I've been doing it for years, but there were times where like I, I didn't post for four months. there were there were times where i I wasn't consistent with it. and it, basically, I just wasn't taking it seriously, which is like, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to become an influence. I was like, I just want to make a cool Instagram account. That, that's how it started. And then, um, I did that for a few years and I was getting more into it. And I was really enjoying, you know, breaking down these concepts and being that educator. But I was sort of over the course of like a year or two, I was losing followers, which is, you know, now I'm fine with it. Then I was, and I was like, Oh God, I, you know, everyone hates me, but it's because I was inactive and you know, I wasn't doing things that were really interesting. And I realized I was having this like over the course of about a year or two, this sort of transition and trying to think about, well, what do I really want to do with this? What do I really want to talk about? What do I, what do I want my end product to be? And it's, I want to be more than just, you know, some account that someone goes to reads some cool thing, likes it and says like, ah, neat. It's like, I actually want to make an impact. I actually want to, I don't know, like engage science, get people into it, get people to actually want to do it more. And I was realizing that my my account name used to be Contemporary Conservationist. I I liked it at the time because it was a double C alliteration for the win. I hate it now. I think it was like, oh God. I, I look back and like uh you know but that I mean, that's like anything, you know, you, you read the, you read the paper you wrote three years ago, you're like, oh, I was an idiot. Um, so, but I realized it was pigeonholing me. People didn't know who I was. I was some random photographer that was posting long captions and it was pigeonholing me to talk about only conservation because I was this conservationist and I was like, well, I want to talk about like phylogenetic niche conservatism, like these really like specific topics, but it just wouldn't make sense for the brand. So I think it was at the beginning of this year, maybe the beginning of last year, because, I don't know, time doesn't exist, and I can't remember anything to save my life anymore. I, I changed it to just Dylan the Biologist. And that was very intentional. I, like, thought about it for weeks, about a new name. And I, I settled on it because I was like, I want to be personal. I want to, one, if I'm really trying to show that what biology looks like behind the scenes, I, I actually have to show that there's a person. Um, we We often think of scientists as just... They're, they're scientists Then that's it. Right. They're not, they're not a human being. They don't got bills. They don't, right. you know, they're, they're, they're they just sitting emotions. in an office. <laughs> yeah. We don't have anything. We don't have like, you know, like bad days. We're just, we're going out and playing with animals, I think. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um yeah, so I changed it and I was also really changing the content I was producing because I started to get into videos a lot more. I started really doing this videography stuff and doing some really intense, really over the top editing and i was trying to show people me looking for animals in the field i don't do that as much anymore because it just takes way too long to edit and put together and it's you know the the cost benefit analysis didn't make sense for me to do that
2: (laughs) roi
0: was not there
1: (laughs) no 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 not at all and then it's so funny because if like if you scroll on my instagram um Right now, you'll just see lots of videos of myself, and which is not something I, like I'm an introvert at heart, like putting myself in front of a camera at first was not my thing. It was mm, no way at all. Like I, I definitely, you know, me from like three years ago would look at my account and be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> oh my God, stop. But yeah, so, so now the content strategy that I've really been pushing on the past year is one, trying to create an awesome community of scientists, communicators, researchers, and trying to get them to actually like affect change in some way so you know maybe holding a competition to look for species maybe trying to work on a project together like some research project together trying to talk about design and just really trying to form that community more than like audience uh i don't know audience educator mentality and then also doing things like short little videos which i think are just fun for me but then Intermixing those with these longer form uh, posts where I really try to break down concepts in a much more visual way, not just a long caption that most people won't read. And I that that's partly why I realized I was losing so many followers is because I was changing so much as well and only posting pictures. So I was really only had photographers that were following me. But I didn't want photographers, I want people who want to learn something. And you know, there, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but um I, I was changing it and then. This past year, I've gotten like a lot of growth because I really stuck to my guns and I really was like, no, no, no I want to do this. I want to be personal. I want to be Dylan, the biologist, not some faceless person. So, yeah, the, the content basically to sum up the ramble, uh, the the content has changed massively. It's it's constantly evolving. I'm constantly looking at what I can do better. How can I change it? How can I connect with more people on a social media platform. But yeah, it started very intentionally and it looks nothing like how it did when it started. And that's that's awesome. That that's exactly what I want.
0: Yeah. That shows that you're growing. You're growing mm-hmm. and evolving as everything changes and you grow, as the mm-hmm. platforms grow and you grow and you're like, what does the community actually need? I mean, you gotta start somewhere. Everybody has to yeah, start somewhere. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Exactly. And like your your starting point is always gonna be shitty. Like I I don't I don't care. Like it's it's always gonna be bad, but you have to start. You have Mm -hmm. to start, or else you're never gonna learn and you're never gonna grow. So like just post the thing. Just post the thing. Who cares? Like
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and like let's say that someone is really resonating with you. They're like, Dylan, I've had this exact same idea. There's these concepts that I really want to talk about too, but I don't even know where the hell to start. And especially now that so many social media platforms are going to video, that's just how this is naturally progressing. Mm-hmm. What, what are some tips or tricks that you have for anyone listening on maybe, where's a good place to start or things to keep in mind or this particular way has worked for me. What are some things you would like to share?
1: Yeah, it, it, the, the tips I think change a lot depending on where you're at. If you haven't started, Like if you haven't done anything, if you haven't, you know, made a video or made a carousel post or, you know, wrote and and, uh, written an interesting (laughs) long caption before, just, just start, Just, just do it once and don't worry about it. Like, like say I, you honestly, the, the striving for perfection is what will be your undoing because it will never be perfect. No matter what you do, it will never be perfect. So just say, I'm going to make an Instagram post at the end of an hour. I will have to post it no matter where it's at and just do it just just start somewhere. Don't worry about optimal time to post. Don't worry about how many posts a week can I do? Don't worry about batch creating up 30 content. That I always hear this, like I want to start, I'm going to make like a month worth of content. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just make one. Just start with one. And then once you finish that one, a couple of days later start another one. Just just keep doing it. Just keep doing little bitty things. And eventually you'll start to figure out, you know, that that post that took you an hour maybe three weeks down the line, it'll take you 20 minutes because you just know, you understand how to write, you understand like how the picture should look, you don't, you know, you you, you understand you're learning. Once you start really getting to this point of like kind of understanding just how to post and also just feeling comfortable with posting, that that's a big part. And, you know, I, I think this applies for anything. If you're doing a caption, if you're doing like some, you know, Instagram, TikTok short video or whatever, just just post something. Then start trying to increase your frequency again, ignore the perfection, just get it out there. Because what I found, and because I'm a perfectionist at heart, I always want things to be perfect. I want it to look as best as possible. What I found is that when I was trying to chase that perfection for each individual post, I would never reach it. And I would get so caught up and I would never post it because it wasn't good enough for me. When I, when I forced myself to do like a real, I was doing um, a reel a day for when I first started really doing these short videos. It was like one every single day. Then I got up to two a day and I was like, I can do two a day because I, what I realized is I'm learning with every single post I make and I'm learning more every single time I post. So the, the, the analogy I use is like, well, if, if I, if I learn from every single post, I would rather learn 10 times a week than three times a week. And it's always little things. It's, it's tiny, tiny little things. But now my like baseline for what is an easy post is so much higher than it was, you know, three years ago. Like what takes me 20 minutes now versus 20 minutes three years ago, completely different. And it's just because I've learned, I've learned all these little things. I've learned, you know, hey, th- this color scheme works really well for me. Um, hey, when I'm doing these videos and I need to lip sync or whatever, it-, it helps to trim just a little bit off the start of the video, which if I, if I tried to do that on one post and try to get it all perfect, I'd never reach it. So in terms of tricks, you know, it's get started, increase your frequency, ignore perfection, never try it for it, just say good enough. Even if Even if you don't like it, post it anyways. Like, I, I will say that again and again. Even if you don't like it, post it anyways. Keep it up and say, okay, cool. I'll learn for the next one. I'll learn for the next one. There is always going to be a bigger project. There's always going to be a more important topic you can talk about, no matter what. This, like, expecting your first post to be your Peace Day Resistance is a terrible idea because it will not be. So that I mean that's really the biggest thing. And also do what's fun for you. You know, don't don't do what you think you should. Do what you want to do. Stop caring about the perfect, like the perfect time to post, the optimal hashtag. Oh, just just do it. Just just post it and have fun. Like you're you're gonna get way more enjoyment. And I guarantee you'll make way more content and better content because of it.
0: Oh, that's so great. Oh, that's so good. And um and too, you have a very wide range of types of videos that you put out there. Like mm-hmm. it's It's everything from serious to, you know, like, oh my God, my dad is doing something stupid to like having like a really like personal moment of something you're experiencing. So where, where do you get inspiration for what you put up on your account?
1: Yeah. The inspiration thing is always interesting. So, you know, if we're talking about like the nitty gritty of, you know, choosing the right audio for the algorithm or whatever, Honestly, I just look at bigger accounts. I look at accounts that are like content managing, you know, they have 200,000 followers or whatever. And I'm like, well, they're doing something right. I'm not going to spend the time looking up the perfect trending audio that'll be trending next week because that's what they're doing. It's like, I'll take what they're doing. Screw it. You know, (laughs) one just leaves me up for it's better because it's more like I am given a prompt and then I can adapt that prompt. I don't have the idea of I want to talk about how my how like advisors and professors never respond to emails. And then now I need to find the right audio. I, it, it's a backwards way of thinking because you're never going to find the right audio, especially with how things are on this platform now. What I do is is I look for something that gives me some type of template to work off of, and I go from there, um, because I think it's easier to have like the the general theme, the the template of the video, and then like, say how can I interject my own experiences into this. So especially with these short form videos, that's the thing. But if I'm doing something longer form, if i want to break down a topic, usually I'm not looking for a topic. I usually don't. It's just, hey, this paper just came out and I just read it because of happenstance. Let me turn that into a video. Again, I already have a template. I have the paper itself. I'm not saying I need to find a paper that is talking about conservation of salamanders and need to make sure it has a good story that I can adapt into something. I'm just consuming content and looking for cool stories and that's how the inspiration comes from. Oftentimes it's seeing someone else's post and wanting to take a single element of it. Like I I saw someone talking about sustainable fashion, right? Just that, hey, sustainable fashion should look like this. And in reality, what we think is sustainable is not. And I was like, cool. Well, I took that and I was like, well, a lot of people misunderstand the idea of reduce, reuse, recycle. And so then that was coming from sustainability, the sustainable fashion. It was mentioned reducing your impact took just the reduced part and turned into a full post. So that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from. It's these little stepping stones. A lot of times it's stuff that I'm trying to learn more about. Like I'm trying to understand a concept called phylogenetic signal a lot better. So there's probably going to be posts about phylogenetic signal so that I can learn them better. So it's really trying to, to not like have an idea and find the perfect thing. It's about letting the ideas come to you when they feel natural always be thinking about how can I turn this random thing that I read into a piece of content? Is that good content? Is that something cool? And if it is, I write it down. So I have just a running list of things that I can talk about and that that's always worked really well for me.
0: Wow. <laughs> that's so good. Cause I mean, I mean, part of this is I, I want everyone to hear your amazing advice. And part of it is selfish because like, I'm so new to this. Like, I'm a conservation biologist, and I was like, mm. I want to create a podcast to share stories like this, share stories like yours. What are the pain? What are the struggles? What do we really go through? And in the process, I had to learn how to become a social media manager, a content mm. designer, mm. like a, a marketing director, and all these things that I had no idea on how to do. Mm -hmm. I just like before, I just like, I love taking pictures and posting them online just because it's fun because I travel to cool places and see cool things. Like that was the Mm. extent of my (laughs) thinking of this. (laughs) But with, uh, but with finally having a reason to build something intentionally, that's why I'm just like, so grateful just to hear those, like this, this is what's worked for me and it probably Mm -hmm. could work for you. And then especially if anyone listening, because the more people we have online, Sharing good quality educational alternative mm-hmm. concepts. Like, if people are scrolling through TikTok, anyways, and maybe there's like one video that actually has some concrete, actionable mm-hmm. call to action in it that's better for the world, just imagine. Like, and if that one video went viral for that person, Mm -hmm. how many millions of people could possibly be impacted from that one piece of content, you know? So that's how I view it as and why I'm so grateful that you were able to come on and chat with me about this because Mm -hmm. we need more people putting good stuff out there. We just do. There's so much negative stuff. There's so much bad stuff. So much. Almost all of our field is. Almost Mm -hmm. all the stuff online is in conservation biology anything the sciences is is just guilt trips out the freaking wall zoo the world is ending everybody i mean might as well dig your grave now because it's not long before the world explodes you know that's just
2: like what
1: we're doing now yeah and it it helps it helps nothing like it doesn't doesn't do anything like it's like it's like yeah that's why i'm all big about the the climate positivity movement because it's like there's good things that are happening it's like oh yeah you want to inspire the next generation by telling them they're going to be dead in 10 years good luck like (laughs) like you know it's like what what are you doing with that and it's yeah and it's always putting the blame on the individual and it's like why like you're just going to make someone feel bad for existing like come on like that's it's not going to help anything
2: right like
0: yeah and giving like real like I said, like real call to actions. Like, what can you actually do? What is something that you can feel mm-hmm. good about and putting pressures on our, you know, the big mega organizations and corporate organizations that, mm-hmm. I mean, and all, enough people put a pressure on them and they start to see a dip in their profits. You best believe they're going to listen. And so right. it's just getting more voices out there for mm-hmm. that, I mean, it doesn't matter if someone has a hundred followers or a hundred thousand
1: followers. Like, exactly.
0: Put it out there.
1: Put it exactly, out there. and yeah, and it's like, but it's also like have fun with it. Like, like, right. like that's the thing. Like, everyone is so fucking serious about it, and I'm like, man, like I, the, the reason, like I, I don't know, the reason I keep doing social media is because, like, yeah, I'll have this serious post where I'm like talking about like you know imposter syndrome and like ex- like you know depressive attitudes in like graduate school and like the sciences and stuff and then i'm like gonna do some stupid video where like i'm a detective like who <laughs> a detective biologist whose paper got swooped by some other asshole biologist because it's just stupid and it's fun and like i don't care and i but it's like because of that it's you know people are more likely because yeah no one ever wants to talk about doom and gloom all the time but it's just like, because I'm having fun with it, it's like, it feels like a break almost. It's not like I have to be this serious person. I'm just me. I'm just doing whatever the hell I want to do. And if you are like a very serious person who wants to really tackle serious issues, that's awesome. Do that. But just be you. Just just be you at the end of the day. Like most of the time I'm a fool. So I, I want to act like a fool on social media.
0: <laughs> I just like, I'm just picturing the one, I don't know. I think you've been in in a couple of videos and like a blow up frog. Class.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: and it's so stupid and i love it and people have started to call me frog lord um it's like (laughs) it's become like an inside joke like someone just someone just like messaged me it's like can I get some, like, how can I get some good luck from the frog Lord or something? <laughs> and I, it was something weird. And, like, I responded with, like, you know, bring me seven tadpoles and it shall be so. And it's like what, am I? And I like, what is this? This is so stupid. And that's when people are like, like, you are making an impact. You are, like, a communicator. And I'm like, bro, I just put on an inflatable frog suit and dance, like, every couple months. And it's like, ah. Uh... Like, but I but I think that's what makes it like an effective message as well. It's like, you know, again, showing that there's human beings behind the screen that biologists are humans that do stupid things. Like I have so much random frog like paraphernalia and stuff. (laughs) Like everyone just sends me anything. Like I literally got a text from my roommate today, just like sending me some frog backpacks. I was like, (laughs) hell yeah, I want to get them.
0: And yeah, and like the silly one, I mean, we're talking about it right now. And now someone who's listening might go on your profile to see this hilarious inflatable frog costume that you put on in some of your videos. Uh And they're like, oh my God, that's funny shit. I want to follow. And then now they're going to get your other content too. That might be a good call to action. That might be a greater concept to explore. That might be connecting. Because you've posted some stuff where I'm just like, man, that hit me. And, and then we, and then you and I even start chatting about it. Cause I'll like tag you in a story and I'm like, oh my right. God, like this hit me in the feels And then we'll talk about it. And like, that's huge. Right. I mean, for like, yeah. like building community and, and this is right. real stuff we go through.
1: Right. And I don't, I also don't want to make it seem like this is like completely random. Like everything I do is just like, you know, serendipitous, like whatever I post, it's like, there's a lot of intention that goes into like stacking things in such a way so that I'm not just being like ultra depressing for like two months. It's like, it's like the frog outfit's a really good example. Cause people are, I get, I'll get tagged for like a couple of weeks after I post something with the frog. It's like, you need to do this with the frog thing. And I'm like, yeah, but here's the deal y'all. If I do it all the time, it won't be special. It's like, mm. I like and I, I do it when I feel like everyone has forgotten about it. And, I, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, there's, there's a lot of intention in how I like stagger these things, because to, to a degree, I almost want it to be like, you, you click on a video and you don't know how you're going to feel yet. You don't know if you're going to feel happy, you don't know if you're going to feel sad, but that brings you in because you don't know, because you don't know the vibe yet. You don't understand the emotion that's going to go into it. And it's almost like a little surprise and, but you, you're going to feel something. And that's what I want to capture with that. Um, I mean, yeah, usually you can tell from the thumbnail, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, like, there, there's a lot of intention, but it's, it's all, again, it's little tricks that I learned along the way. This wasn't, I spent, you know, six months in social media boot camp learning all of these tricks, and now I release them on the world. I'm like, no, this has been years of, like, oh, this this color scheme works better. I'll start using it. Oh, using this type of video works really well or this angle or this lighting works really well for that video. So I'll start doing it in my other ones and then making my life easier. Like my, my carousel posts, I have a template that I use in Canva. All I do now is I just copy and paste that template and I have something I can work off of. And it's just, you know, I have the text in order. I know what color scheme I'm using. I know what the background's going to look like. It, it So it, making my life easier and making it more efficient to make whatever the hell I want to make like there is I mean yes it's planned there's a lot less planning than I think people like like I don't have anything planned right I have I have like no reels in my draft I have no carousels saved right now like I have nothing <laughs> made for next week but I'm gonna do that maybe tomorrow I'm not sure I'm going camping so we'll see
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have some ideas that'll hit you you know when you're out oh, yeah. and, about and just like oh, record
1: yeah. oh yeah I, I my, my favorite thing recently has been to like hang out with friends and te- w- without telling them record a stupid real joke and just like <laughs> wait for them to groan in or hate it or something and it's like I- I'm just waiting for one where like I-, I say something really stupid and they just respond with Dylan shut the fuck up already you know like, I want that in real I want that so badly in a real <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then I get to see it, like pointing to your face me just losing it like
2: yes <laughs> I got I- it
1: right because i've had some really like weird reels before like i remember yeah i met up with a friend from Tucson, and we did like a thirst trap reel and i'm like what the hell why am i doing this i have <laughs> I never that. done this yeah it was, like, and
0: it's like and you like like freaking drop it low i <laughs> saw that and i lost my shit <laughs>
1: right and i was like i left all of the laughs because like literally we could not record for more than five seconds without just like giggling because it's so <laughs> stupid so yeah but that's like going back to i'm having fun with it the content is yeah it's all related to being a biologist weird stuff but i do whatever i want at the end of the day
0: (laughs) which i think is why yeah you've you've definitely got the the community that you do because of that Mm -hmm. i mean no one knows what's coming yeah exactly and and it's a good mix of humor and and i mean that's something for someone to consider too yeah like Mm-hmm. Mix it up. Try different things. Yeah. see see what sticks. Like you don't always have to be mm-hmm. serious. You don't always have to have right. humor. It's just a mix of right. things and see how it goes. I mean, your community right. will let you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, they will. They will. And it's like, yeah, I'm always looking through my posts. Like every week I'm I'm looking through and like, this one didn't do good. Why is it didn't do good? Was it the timing or was it the content? But like, hey, these are doing really good. I should start running down this chain a bit more. Like lately, people really seem to like when I make a reel about science misinformation and how to spot it. Well, great. I could easily do that. There's there's more I can make with that. So it, it's, you know, it's, it's doing what you want, being aware of what works better and making that more of your content because yeah you, you, it's going down rabbit holes basically just going down rabbit holes and letting yourself go down them
2: mm.
0: that's gorgeous yeah if it's if it ain't broke don't fix it like
2: mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. something
0: is working really well figure out why and then just keep going until it doesn't work anymore right. and then mix it up
2: <laughs> right
0: <laughs> oh that's great that's great that was that's great advice oh my gosh yes everyone Check it out. Check out Dylan's stuff and then just go from there. He's super easy to get a hold of online as well. He's not like mm. one of those people that are just like a faceless name in the DMs.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> not that at all. So so the transition, there's this one question that I absolutely love to dive in with everybody because, again, this field isn't easy and we all go through a lot of stuff. What would you say has been your biggest struggle that either you're currently going through, or that you've had to, or that or that you've successfully overcome. But mm-hmm. what is that most defining moment in your path that you're like, damn, that was hard?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always just been restarting, like my life over and over and over again. You know, it's like, okay, I went to, um, like, yeah, I, I, you know, I went to undergrad. That was restarting. I had to move somewhere new, and then there for four years. But then it was, you know, halfway through. I did a study abroad for like three months. So that was had to get rid of my apartment because I couldn't afford an apartment and being, a, I mean, money is also a very big struggle that that's definitely the undertone of all this. But uh, yeah, so I was restarting that and trying to figure out, okay, well, where am I going to keep all my stuff? Where am I going to do this? Blah, 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 blah. Then, okay, cool. I finished that. Well, then I, I left again. I went, I went abroad for six months. That was a restarting of what was my life. And then I literally like, you know, I was living in Texas, went to Belize for six months. I like went from Belize I visited I visited Canada for a couple weeks then I came back down to Texas for like four days just to pack up all my stuff and then drive out to California and start my life now in San Diego and now I'm at the stage of like well I have like a year left or whatever and I'm gonna have to restart my life again don't know where I'm gonna be I don't know what I'm gonna do and it's like it is so exhausting to constantly be doing that it's like it's like you know Good luck trying to start, ha- like, hold on to a relationship while you, like, it, it's so hard to, like, plan something with someone and be like, I don't know where I'm going to be living in a year. Like, yeah. if I'm going to be on the East Coast or the West Coast, it's it's like, and I, I'm just getting really tired of that. I, I'm getting, like, really tired of it. And, you know, that, that's, you know, you make sacrifices for whatever you're going to do in life. No, no matter what, you will make a sacrifice at some level. But it's, I, I'm at sort of at this, like, turning point. I'm like, is this worth it to me? Because, like, right now. I absolutely love living in San Diego. I seriously love this area. I would love to make it work where I'm living here, but like a PhD opportunity isn't here for me. It just 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 isn't here. So if I want to do that, I'd have to move. And that's kind of where I'm at. I'm definitely taking a year off though, because I just mm-hmm. need a year off. Like like graduate school during a pandemic. Man, fuck that. Like I don't want <laughs> to like I don't I don't want to just Yeah, it's it's like I just did that. Let me go back into some shit for like five years. No. Yeah. Gonna, no. So yeah, so I, I'm kind of struggling with that a lot. And also just like, do I mean, of course, wrapped up into that, do I want to stay in academia? Because there are so many problems with it. It's like, just there's so many issues. And it's something I'm not sure if I really want, what if I need to be in it for what I want to do. It's like, you know, if I follow this influencer creator path, and sort of do my own research, because like, the research I do now, I don't need any permits for it. It's all data analysis. But I can so easily work with someplace. Like if I live in San Diego, I could volunteer with the museum and help them on their field research. Like I, I don't necessarily need the research to be my thing. I just need to be outside. I need to be doing something. So yeah, I'm, I'm at this turning point of do I want to restart my life again, go back into something where I'm not making any money and like always struggling. Like it's like I ever since I started working, I haven't like as a human being started working. I've always had two to three jobs. Like. Like, if not more. Yeah. And it's just like, it's exhausting. It's like, it's just, it's such a weird mentality where it's like, I'm usually starting to work at like 6am or whatever, because I'm very early riser. And then say, I need to make sure I don't work past 7pm. Like 13 hour days are like my baseline of like, yeah, I should cool it. You know, it's like, what the hell am I doing? But yeah, so I'm, it's, it's being overworked, restarting your life, not getting paid. And it's, it's, it's a lot to really, take into account. It's actually been, you know, like, like, I I'm big on the transparency. I'm very big on like, like, I, I kind of hate it when someone gets into my DMS, I'm like, I really want to be a biologist. What is it like? And I'm like, you won't get paid. It kind of sucks. The grad school's tricky. Like just yesterday, I posted on my story about how I, you know, I, I live in San Diego, but university pays me a thousand dollars a month to live. um, Like, which is actually less than they say I need to live based on their stuff. And I I'm going to the food bank, you know, it's like, that's a big reality of like many grad programs, of many stages of being a biologist, is not getting good pay. But you do it because you genuinely love the field. You love it. it, it, it no matter how shitty it is, you still feel like it's worth it in some way. I just want it to be worth it more. <laughs> that,
2: yes. that, that's where,
1: that is where I'm at. Yeah. And just, you know, I just want to have some sense of stability in my life, like actually being able to work on being in an area and living there and actually forming connections and not like, yeah, I have friends that I knew three years ago, but I haven't spoken to because we, you know, it's, we can't hang out anymore. Um, we, we we reconnect every few months via messaging or something. And like, that's, that is like the hard part about being a biologist. And, you know, any, every grad student I've talked to has felt the same way. It's just so tricky. There's so much uncertainty. And it's like, how can you really start your life when you don't even know what your life is going to look like in a year? Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Totally feel you. I, I had a similar life transition as well. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the the solution that I found for how I want to contribute the world also happens to pay more. So mm-hmm. hopefully, you'll find that as well. Minus conservation travel, sustainable travel. Yeah, because most of right. those are, you know, for profit businesses. And ironically, mm-hmm. I feel like I've done more good for the world in these for-profit businesses than the nonprofits I used to work for. So there's like a whole bunch of layers to unfold there, (laughs) but but I I get it. I completely get it. It's a struggle. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, now my biggest thing is since it was such a struggle and I did work so many jobs, but yet my degrees are so expensive, now I have a lot of student loan debt,
2: Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah.
0: So don't know when that's being paid off, but we're working on it, you know?
2: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: yep. <laughs> it was like, when you're gonna have kids. I'm like, I don't know when my student loan debt that's gonna cost the same amount as a child is gone. Like I don't right, know. Right. <laughs> Maybe then we'll think about it. But yeah, no, I completely understand. And yeah, it's just being a biologist now and being in this field now, I think it's just a little a little harder than what it used to be from yeah. everything that I've heard from
1: previous generations. Oh, for sure. For sure, but for sure
0: but that's okay. We'll make it through.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: You'll monetize something in some way, shape or form and, and you have time to figure exactly. it out. I mean, you don't, oh, I yeah. Mean, that's, yeah, that's a beautiful thing about at least going through that in this stage. Like you don't have a family you're trying to support. Like luckily you can just right. like, truly focus on you and what you mm-hmm. need. And then hopefully all the good dominoes. <laughs>
2: We'll right, right right
1: <laughs> i know exactly and like i'm a big believer in inertia like if you're feeling like things are going your way continue it make sure you're continuing it making sure you're just keeping that momentum going um and that's what i feel like right now like i feel like there's a lot of good going on in my life and i'm just keeping it going so
0: mm. well on that note too what what piece of advice or just something cuz you have the platform right now you have this platform to say whatever you want and you have a moment to speak directly to whoever is listening. What do you want them to walk away with?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, I'm always going to say like, you know, always work on doing what you love. Like if, if, you're, if your current love is going out into the field and looking for, for snakes and salamanders, pursue that. If your current love is creating content and wanting to make you know education materials that are really going to create an impact, do that. But whenever you are trying to find your passion and trying to do what you love, make sure you can do it in a way that still supports you because no matter how much passion, no matter how much love you have, if you can't eat, uh, <laughs> there's not much you can do. So, there's always a way to make money from your passion there's always a way to make a living there's always a way to continue doing what you want to do but just know that you need to find that and i think that means sometimes taking sacrifices i not also i'm I'm a believer that you don't need to have a lot of money i am like you know (laughs) i've been broke so many times like broke broke like wasn't sure if i could make it to the airport to leave the country because I only had like $6 in my bank account and the taxi would have cost seven. You know, yeah. like that, that's happened to me several times, but I always did something that I loved. And I always said yes to things that even if they were going to be scary or tricky, or I, I wasn't sure if I could do it, I said yes anyways, and tried. And I failed a lot of times. I failed so many times. It's, it's insane how many times I failed. And I just said, okay, cool. Going to keep going. And that's what I think like, pursuing your passion is really about it's about pursuing it and keep trying to find a way to make it your living trying to make it your career even when it's tricky even when you feel like you're broke 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 even when it's just everything is sort of pushing against you it's just trying to find a way to alter that narrative and make it your own and saying that i want to be a biologist that's what i'm passionate about i like biology i like educating i like research i love science That doesn't mean i have to be in academia to do that right there isn't one path there are so many ways to monetize what you're doing there's so many ways to make a living off of what you're doing and i think that's what i mean by find a way to support yourself and it doesn't have to be the way that you think it is i would not even be considering the possibility of being like a creator biologist like hybrid and that's how i make a living but now that's where i'm thinking that's honestly what i'm probably that's that is what i'm pursuing and it may fail i don't know like i don't know <laughs> like it could totally fail and that's cool that's awesome because i've learned so much because of it i've i've propelled other parts of myself of my career of my of my ethos of who i am as a human being because i pursued that so pursue what you're passionate about be open to wherever that passion leads you but Try to figure out a way that to support yourself, so that you can do what you're passionate about.
0: Mm, that was so good. That was beautiful. Could not agree Thanks. more. I practiced
1: that for months. Like I, <laughs> I thought of it. Like it seemed totally like uh, serendipitous, but I was like, no, 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 no. I wrote that down, and I was, I memorized it. I have it up on the screen right now. I don't. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm. Mean. I have some like Dungeons and Dragons shit on my screen right now. <laughs>
2: oh
0: my god you're so much fun too (laughs) so you've shared so much with me and i am so grateful for all of this and i know that you're going to make a great impact on so many people and if somebody wants to get in contact with you let's say that something you said really resonated what is the best way
1: Honestly, nowadays it's Instagram is the best way to contact me. Cause I mean, even on Instagram, there's like my email link. You can just, it's, and it's like my personal email. Like I don't, I don't care if someone emails me, I'm usually going to respond. Um, but yeah, Instagram, Dylan, the biologist, it's by far the easiest way to reach me. And I'm pretty good about DMs, even if it's like too many at times. I'm like, it may take me a day or two. Just, <laughs> I will almost always respond. As long as you're not an asshole. Like, you know. <laughs> Those come. Yeah, if That yeah.
0: comes with the territory and just be like, yeah. I think someone, you know, like, I don't know, like a highlight of a podcast uh, a- episode the other day, they're like, they said something like shut up or something like on the post. I'm like, who the hell are you? Like, okay, like,
2: right? silly
0: <laughs> asshole. Like, uh, <laughs> shut up. Are you serious? But yeah, I guess it just comes with the territory. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. talent. Well, this has been so much fun and i'm so grateful that you spent your morning with me and i cannot wait to get
1: yeah this was a lot of fun
0: <laughs> hey thanks again for listening to this episode of rewildology if you like what you heard hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode do you have a cool environmental organization travel story or research that you like to share let me know at rewildology.com until next time friends together we will rewild the planet